Last week, we opened the book of 1 Peter, and we said it begins a little bit like a birthday present. That verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 are like the obligatory greeting card that comes right before the gift. So you kind of just have to open it, but you're surprised because like a thoughtful card, it contains more than just dry details. These first couple verses of 1 Peter contain truths that will be discussed throughout the letter. Truths about who you and I are in relation to the living God. Well, then as the letter continues, it's like we open the actual present in verses 3 through 12. In verses 3 to 5, God the Father gives us a sweeter hope of a forgiven past, a sure future, and a guarded present. In verses 6 through 9, God the Son gives us a sweeter perspective despite the suffering and the waiting that we face. And today, as we'll see in verses 10 through 12, God the Spirit gives us a sweeter appreciation for our salvation while we live in a hard and a harsh world. So speaking of birthday gifts, I think we can keep the analogy going today. So let's say it's your birthday. And if it is your birthday, well, happy birthday. Uh, And in front of you, there are several gifts to unwrap. And one of them is a card. So you pick up the card, you begin to open the envelope, and you feel like the saliva that sealed it is still kind of fresh. Um, And you open the card, you even smudge the ink because the message was just written. And out spills onto your lap a little thin black rectangle with the letter A on it. Yes, this is an Amazon gift card, but it's $400. And so it is such a generous gift. You know, if uh, I could knock out most of the things on my wish list for $100 from Amazon. Uh, So that's your first gift. And then you go to open the the next one. It's maybe uh, a little shoddily wrapped. It looks a little messy. And as you open it, you unfold it, you discover that it's a blanket. It's a blanket. Now you think, well, I, I don't really have a shortage of blankets at my home. And if you're like me, I have a pretty high inner temperature and I never use a blanket just sitting around the house. Uh, so Amazon gift card blanket, let me ask you, what gift would you appreciate more? Now, hold on. What if I told you that the blanket was crocheted by hand over the course of months? I've received such a gift before. Some of you remember the late Dorothy Jacobs. Uh, Dorothy was 90, I think over 90 years old when I became a pastor. And every time I visited Dorothy's house, she was crocheting on her recliner. And the blanket that she made me, it might not have the monetary value of that Amazon gift card, but it is a really almost unrivaled gift of love. There is thought and care and diligence and even skill poured into each and every weave. Now, if you knew all that, you would treat that gift as anything but ordinary. Your appreciation of that gift would only deepen. And in a way, that's what Peter wants for his readers when it comes to the gift of their salvation in Christ. So if you're not there with me yet, please open your Bible to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'll read verses 10 through 12. After I'm done reading, I'll say something like, this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you say with me, thanks be to God. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Hey, Debbie, could you turn me down just a little bit? Appreciate it, brother. Here's the main idea, the main takeaway from this passage. Christian, you have received the gift of salvation long prepared for and long anticipated. So prize and cherish the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's grace there. We'll cover this passage in four steps. First, we'll see, we'll, we'll clarify what is this salvation that Peter is talking about. And then we'll see how this salvation has been anticipated, how it's been announced and how it is admired. And my friend, it's my prayer today that as you live in a world where there is so much that is uncertain, a world where there are treasures that are rusted and where thieves break in and steal, it's my prayer that you would cling to the precious, unfading, secure gift of the gospel. So let's get started. Peter begins in verse 10 with the phrase concerning this salvation. Well, what is that salvation that Peter's talking about? Well, another way to translate that word is the word deliverance. And maybe that sharpens our focus a little bit. And then the question becomes, well, delivered from what? Well, this is where the context can help us. The way that Peter begins verse 10 sort of continues the flow of thought that he's already begun in verses three through nine. In verses three through nine, we've seen different dimensions of our salvation or our deliverance. We've seen it has a past dimension, a present dimension, and a future dimension. So look back at verse three. God has caused us to be born again, to be made new, to be forgiven, to be transformed from our past. Verse five, God's power is guarding our faith in the present. Verses five and seven and nine, Peter likes to talk about this. We still wait for the full experience of our salvation in the future. Past, present, future. These are the dimensions of our salvation. And many have organized these dimensions under the headings of regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. But if you use one of those words at a dinner party, you might, might sound really smart. <laughs> but if you want to look more into them, they're actually the subheadings under our article of, on salvation in our statement of faith. But let me explain. You can think of it like this, past, present, future. So in regeneration, you have been delivered from being enslaved to sin. Past, right? Justification. You have been delivered from the penalty of sin. Sanctification. Present. You are being delivered from the power of sin. Glorification. Future. You will be delivered from the presence of sin. So in all those salvation past, present, and future, this is the salvation Peter is talking about in verse 10. And as he continues, he describes salvation in a couple different words. He also calls it grace, and he also calls it good news. Now, I can explain like this. I can take you back to your favorite class, eighth grade English. Now, you might have noticed when I described the dimensions of salvation, I used the passive voice, right? You have been delivered. You are being delivered and you will be delivered. Note, there is no subject in that, those statements. There's just a direct object. In other words, 
You are being delivered, but who's the one doing the delivering? Well, it's God. God is the God of our salvation. If this weren't so, then Peter couldn't describe salvation as grace we receive. He would have to describe it as an accomplishment we achieve. If God isn't the one who delivers and saves, then salvation wouldn't be good news. Because that would mean we would have to deliver and save ourselves. And contrary to Hollywood or to every Disney song, the savior you need is not inside of you all along. This is the salvation Peter's talking about. It is fully orbed. It's three-dimensional, past, present, future. And it's a salvation of grace. God gives it. We receive it. God achieves it. We walk in it. Now, before we go on any further, I want you to address something. I don't want you to make a quick assumption about yourself just because you sit in a room like this. You know, Jesus warns us that many people will be surprised when they stand before him and they discover that they haven't actually been delivered from their sin. And he describes those people. He says they're surprised because they're so caught up in relying upon the supposed good that they have done instead of relying on God and the good he has done through Christ. So before we go on, my friend, you need to address something. Have you stopped trusting in yourself to save yourself? And instead, have you started trusting in God to save you? If you haven't, if you haven't done this, go to God today. Go to God and and confess that you have gone your own way instead of his. Go to God and tell him that you trust his son, Jesus, to stand in your place. You trust his perfect life. You trust his sacrificial death on the cross. You trust his victorious resurrection. And then you tell God that you are ready to follow him and live in light of this gracious salvation. My friend, if you have not done this, today is the day of salvation. But as for you, Christian, I want you to address something before we go forward. Do you appreciate your salvation? And most of us would say yes, but of course I can appreciate it more. Well, yeah, you're right. I, I think of uh, about a couple of weeks ago, and Jonathan mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you probably know her. Johnny has a unique ministry to disabled people, uh, being disabled herself. Uh, she lost function of her arms and legs uh, during a diving accident when she was 17. And then one of her friends, Elizabeth Elliot, was a missionary whose first husband was killed uh, by those to whom uh, he sought to share the gospel with. And then Elizabeth's second husband died of cancer. And in the midst of her suffering... Elizabeth would often think of her friend, Johnny. Not to make herself guilty, but to keep herself grateful. So when the normal tasks of life, like washing a pile of dishes, walking the dog in cold weather like this, (laughs) would bother Elizabeth, she would remember Johnny and appreciate afresh the gifts that she has. Because she knows that Johnny would quite literally jump at the chance to wash the dishes or walk the dog. Peter writes to Christians who feel the heat of suffering, who are beginning to feel singled out, disrespected, cast aside for their loyalty to Christ. And Peter knows that it's very easy for suffering people to turn into grumbling people. Now, it's not that Peter papers over their trials and their hardships. Instead, Peter wants these Christians to know that they might be suffering people, but they can still be grateful people. 
So a way for them to remain appreciative of their salvation is to see that it was anticipated. Let's go back to verse 10. Follow along again. Their salvation was anticipated. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. There's a lot packed in here. I think we can organize it around these elements. Here we see the prophet's desire, the prophet's message, and the prophet's purpose. The prophet's desire. So from the start, Peter tells us that the prophets want something. They search. They inquire. They even do so carefully. The word used there means to search anxiously and diligently. Now, just to clarify, that term prophets is a way to refer to the human authors of the Old Testament. But it's interesting because Peter also says that these prophets have the spirit of Christ in them. And what he's getting after is the Holy Spirit sent by Christ. So there's a tension here. The Holy Spirit inspires these prophets to write what he wants them to write. And yet this process is not mechanical. It's not robotic. The Spirit doesn't bypass the prophets' own efforts or their own personality. He moves within their own efforts to write what he wants them to write. This is the doctrine of inspiration. And this is how the Bible can have a diversity of styles and genres and yet the same united storyline underneath them all. But the question remains. We said the prophets desire something. They're seeking. They're searching anxiously. But what is it that they want to know? Well, I think the key word is when. They want to know when. Now, you might read verse 11, and it begins with them searching for what person or time. Now, that word person is really a more basic word that can mean who or what. So I think a better way to translate verse 11 might be what time or what circumstance, especially when you consider the context. You see, the prophets are clear on what they're saying, right? They're talking about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. What they're not clear is on when it will happen. And the prophets you see in the Old Testament, they often search for when prophecies will take place. You might know Daniel for being in the lion's den, but you should also know Daniel for being a student of God's word. Daniel chapter nine, Daniel reads the book of Jeremiah and he's trying to discern when will our exile end? And he finds out that when is 70 years. And so here, the prophets search and inquire carefully. They know that God's coming grace and the Messiah, but they want to know when. Will this happen in our day? Well, that's the prophet's desire. And from these verses, we also see the prophet's message. And we've hinted at this already, but let me explain. What, if, what is it that the Spirit moves in them to write down? Well, Peter first describes it as the grace that was to be yours. Grace. The Spirit moves in them to write about future grace. Now, hold on a second. I wonder if you realize what this means. This means that you and I often think of the Old Testament all wrong. This means that the Old Testament is filled with grace. In the Old Testament, we see God's unfolding plan of grace to rescue the people who have rebelled against him. And in whom does that grace culminate and center? Well, in Christ, who suffers and is then glorified. 
Now, hold on a second. I wonder if you realize what this means. This means you and I often read the Old Testament all wrong. This means that the Old Testament is not just a collection of random, unrelated, but, you know, inspirational stories. No, 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 no. The Old Testament is one united story that points forward to something, rather to someone. And that is Jesus, the Christ. Peter knew this. And I bet you that Peter learned this from Jesus himself. Because Jesus himself said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The spirit leads the prophets to write a message about the Christ. So that means the spirit's work in the Old Testament is the same as the spirit's work in the New Testament. He points to Jesus. And by the way, this is why we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament on Sunday mornings. This is why we spent, you know, two months in Numbers. Because there is grace for us there. Because we get to see Jesus there. And by the way, this is why we use the the Gospel Project curriculum for our kids. They get to see God's grace in Christ from all the scriptures. And if you want to see more of that yourself, well, you can volunteer as a teacher for the Gospel Project for kids. Here you go. There's a plug during the sermon. (laughs) So here is the prophet's message. Grace. And this grace centers on the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, in the Old Testament, you can see the sufferings of Christ from a place like Isaiah 53, a chapter many of you might be familiar with, where the suffering servant is bruised for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities. You can see the sufferings of Christ in a place we read earlier, Psalm 22, where the king is forsaken by God, his hands and his feet are pierced, whose garments are divided among those who kill him. In the Old Testament, you can see the subsequent glories of Christ in a place like Isaiah chapter 11, where the descendant of David will reign over the world with justice. Or Malachi chapter 4, where the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings. Or Psalm 118, where the stone that was rejected becomes the cornerstone. What so many people couldn't piece together was not just when this message would happen, but also the order that this message would happen. We notice carefully again in 1 Peter, the prophet's message is that the sufferings of Christ happen before the glories of Christ. Suffering, then glory. Even Jesus knew this. Luke 24, 26, Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? It works a little like this. You see, before the king establishes his kingdom, he must make a way to bring sinners into his kingdom. And he does this by enduring the suffering that the sinners deserve. So that means for you that if you don't receive the suffering king, then he will not receive you when he comes again as the ruling king. This is the prophet's message. Grace in Christ's suffering and glory. And as would have it, this is also the pattern of our lives as Peter will expound on later in his letter. First, we take up our cross and then we receive the crown. Suffering precedes glory. So let's just get our bearings for a second. We're reminded where we are. Our salvation has been anticipated. Peter wants us to appreciate this gift that we have. It's been anticipated. We see the prophet's desire. We see the prophet's message. Peter also talks about the prophet's purpose. Look at verse 12. 
the Spirit told the prophets that, yeah, Christ wouldn't come in, in their day to do his work. He told the prophets their message wasn't for them. It was for those who would come after them. Their purpose was not to serve themselves, but to serve someone else. And brother and sister, just to be clear, this is a worthy purpose for life. Not to serve yourself, but to serve someone else. In fact, it reminds me that the prophet's purpose previews the prophet's savior. What did Jesus say about his purpose? That he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As his disciples, we are meant to pattern our lives after his. So uh, speaking of prophets, I'm sure many of you know this famous verse written by a prophet. It goes like this. I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. What verse is that? Anybody? There you go. Very good. I bet you got that stitched on a throw pillow at your house. That's great. Um, But someone else pointed this out to me recently. Now, in context, Jeremiah 29 is God's promise to restore his people to their home. You see, his people are in their are in exile in Babylon. But the thing is, almost everybody who originally heard Jeremiah 29, 11, almost all of them died in exile. Almost all of them didn't get to see that plan come to fruition. But do you know what was God's good plan for their lives? His good plan for their lives was for them to help prepare the next generation to receive this promise. Christian, I wonder if you have this category for your life, that God's plan for your life isn't just all about you. I wonder if you have this category when you come to church, that you come to church, it's not just about what you can get out of it. It's about what you can help others get out of it. Your life isn't just about you. It's about how God can use you to help others. This is the prophet's purpose. This is a savior's purpose. This should be our purpose. Now, uh, the prophet's purpose wasn't to serve themselves, but Peter's readers. And as Christians, we live on the other side of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that means we are in the same position as the recipients of Peter's letter. So that means that the Old Testament is for us also. That means that the Old Testament benefits us. That means we get to see Jesus anticipated and promised in the Old Testament. And when we see that, our faith is strengthened and our salvation is sweetened. But maybe you're like me and you've been around the Bible for some time and you you start to think a certain way about the Bible, especially if you've known it for a long time. You start to think something like this. If only I got to live back then and see all that's described. You know, if only I got to see the prophet Moses hold up his staff and God split the Red Sea in two. If only I got to see the prophet Elijah stand against the 400 prophets of Baal and God prove himself and consume Elijah's sacrifice. If only I got to see Daniel, the prophet Daniel, stand resolute in the lion's den and God shut the mouths of all the beasts. If only I got to see, then, then my my trust in God would be strengthened. If only I got to see, then surely my salvation would be sweeter to me. Well, friend, if you think like that, do you know what those prophets think of you? (laughs) Moses, Elijah, Daniel, they, they think, Peter tells us, 
They think, if only I got to see what you have seen. They think, if only if I have gotten to see God's own son take on human flesh, if only I got to see God's own son live perfectly obedient to God's law, if only I got to see God's own son die as a full and final sacrifice for sin, if only I got to see God's own son rise again, defeating sin and death forever, if only I got to see God's own son send the spirit to give us new hearts and new desires. If you could hear the prophets talk, they would say to you, if only I got to experience what you have experienced. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. We read it earlier. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Weary and beleaguered Christian, you who feel the heat of suffering, This is not to dismiss your your circumstances, but let me tell you, despite your circumstances, you are blessed. You live in a time anticipated for centuries. You are known and loved by the Christ, the Son of God. So are you beginning to appreciate your salvation? Well, let's keep going because our salvation has been more than just anticipated. Our salvation has been announced Let's pick back up in verse 12. Peter writes, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, I want you to think of something. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to consider how did you first learn about Jesus and what he has done? How did you first learn about that? Is this something that you knew naturally? Is this a message that you were born knowing? I mean, even if you tell me that your parents told you at a young age, well, still someone had to announce it to you. And even if your parents announced it to you, well, praise God for that, but someone had to announce that same gospel to your parents. And whoever told your parents, someone else had to announce the gospel to them. And on and on and on it goes, all the way back to Christ and the apostles themselves. The way that God has made known this message of the good news of Christ's suffering and glory, the way he's made that known is by people announcing it. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or announcing? So, okay, just to recap what we've been through so far. Our salvation was anticipated. God, the Holy Spirit, moved the prophets to write about Christ and what he would do. This is great. But if we just left it there, well, then the question would be, well, how would we know about that? I mean, how would we find out about the one who was promised and now is here? I mean, did people go out and look, at, look for him? Did they send, like, Middle East God's talent and send talent scouts looking for the Messiah? No, they didn't discover their salvation on their own and neither did we. It was announced to us. That should make you appreciate your salvation more. You could have not heard about it. In fact, friends, considering what you have done against God, you shouldn't have heard about it. But God is merciful and sent someone to announce it to you. So Christian, you have, someone has announced the gospel to you. 
The question now is, won't you be that person for someone else? The only way you know the gospel is because someone announced it to you. Won't you be that person for someone else? Isn't that the natural way to apply this? I mean, think about this. Think about it like this. Who were you before Jesus saved you? Who were you before Jesus saved you? If you want a motive to announce the good news, remember that. Before Jesus saved you, yeah, maybe you you looked like you had your life all together, but you know that's not true. And so for your neighbor and for, or for your friend, for your coworker or for your family member, or even for the groups of people around the world who have no access to the gospel, think about where you are with Christ and think about where they are and where they're going without him. How will they know if they don't hear? Now, this phrase that Peter uses, good news, is where we get the word gospel. And one of the first places in the Bible that we see it is Isaiah 52, verse 7. And the verse goes like this. How beautiful about the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. Christian, let me ask you something. Are your feet beautiful? I tell me, Pastor Steve, no, my feet are ugly and they stink. I got, this, I got this weird fungus going on. Okay, you don't have to show me, I believe you. But your feet can still be beautiful. You see, this term, good news, was connected originally to an announcement of a military victory. Back in the day, they didn't have Twitter. So someone had to leave the battlefield and go and tell the home country that we won. Battle's over. Someone had to announce the good news. And and so how it works is that when you saw this messenger, even from a distance, you could already tell what he was going to say. How could you tell? Just look at his feet. How are his feet moving? Are his feet dragging? Because he's got bad news to share? Or is he running? I've heard it put like this. That as Christians... We don't want to announce the good news of Christ's victory over sin and death. We don't want to announce that good news like we're some paid advertisers. We want to announce that good news like we're satisfied customers. Like we actually enjoy what we believe. Because it it works like this. The, The more that you appreciate your salvation, the more you will want others to join in on your salvation. Peter adds one more detail. He says their salvation was announced to them, but he says those who announced the gospel to them preached by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So here's how this works. People announce the gospel to ears and the Spirit applies the gospel to hearts. That's how it works. See, again, I, I know a lot of you are like me. Because you think about that family member, you think about that friend, you think about that neighbor who doesn't know, doesn't believe the gospel, and you think about them and you just end the conversation before it even starts. Because you think, I already know what they're going to say. They're just going to reject it. They're just going to say, they're just going to shrug it off. They're going to raise objections. They're going to ask questions that I have no idea how to answer. They're going to be offended. Our relationship's going to be ruined. Well, okay, well, yes, on the one hand, yes, we can grow in how we announce the gospel. We can grow in the tone that we use. We can grow in the timing that we have. We can grow in the words that we say. But, but, for all those thoughts, I want you to understand something. 1 Peter 1.12, many other places tell you this. 
You are not responsible for someone else's response to the gospel. I will repeat that just to make sure it's clear. You are not responsible for someone else's response to the gospel. You know what you are responsible for? You are just responsible for announcing the gospel. Now, that shouldn't make us cold and callous and distant and removed. It should free us up, though, shouldn't it? You can plead, you can pray, you can aim to persuade. You cannot change someone's heart. You can't cause the gospel to take root in someone, but you can announce it. Now, we're going to talk about this more in 1 Peter. While we're on this subject, though, I've heard one pastor say that he has stopped asking God for opportunities to announce the gospel to someone. Yeah, you heard me right. This is a pastor. He says, God, I, I don't want any more opportunities to announce the gospel anymore. He's like, what? What, what are you talking about? What he's getting after is there are opportunities everywhere all the time. We just don't take them. So what he prays for instead, instead of praying for opportunities, he prays for boldness. Boldness to announce the gospel. And then in that moment, he prays for the spirit to apply the gospel to hearts. Won't you pray the same thing? Pray for boldness. Pray for the spirit to apply. Our salvation was not our discovery. Our salvation, we are not the ones who grasped it. It was announced to our ears. It was applied to our hearts. And by the way, this is how you can know that the gospel has actually landed on you. This is how you can know you actually believe the gospel and haven't just heard the gospel. The question is, has it changed your heart? Listen to what happened to the Thessalonian Christians when the Apostle Paul announced the gospel to them. He writes, For we know, brothers loved by God, that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Do you want to know if the gospel has landed on you? Has the direction of your life changed? Because what is most precious to you has changed. That what is most precious to you is no longer those idols that give you meaning and worth and, and give you value. What is most precious to you now is the living God who has made himself known in his son, Jesus Christ. Cherish your salvation, Christian. It was anticipated. It was announced to you. And finally, your salvation is admired. Look at verse 12, the very last phrase. Look at how it ends. Peter says, things into which angels long to look. Now, I wonder what comes into your mind when you think of angels. Do you think about those precious moments, figurines? <laughs> the angels are all cuddly and cute. Do you think about Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life trying to earn his wings? Do you think about how people often say when someone dies, they become an angel? which is not biblical, by the way. You could talk to me more about that afterwards. Well, Peter doesn't tell us much about angels here, but maybe the readers of his letter would envy angels. Angels dwell in the presence of God. That's how Gabriel describes himself to Joseph and Mary. He said, I am Gabriel. I dwell in the presence of God. Wow. Angels are God's messengers and God's agents in the world. Angels don't have to deal with the trials of the world, but for all the hardness and for all the harshness of our world, Christians have something that angels admire. We have something that they long to look at. 
we have something that they celebrate. You see, it's not for angels that the Son of God was born of a virgin. It's not for angels that the Son of God lived a sinless life. It's not for angels that the Son of God was mocked and rejected by men. It's not for angels that the Son of God was nailed to a cross. It's not for angels that the Son of God spilled his own blood. It's not for angels that the Son of God was buried in a tomb. It's not for angels that the Son of God rose from the dead. It's not for angels that the Son of God lives to intercede and pray for. It's not for angels that the Son of God will return and rescue and be his bride. It's not for angels. It's for his church. It's for you. So let's return to your birthday party. The angels are like the kids at your birthday party who watch with delight as you open the present of salvation. They want to sneak past everybody saying, let me see, let me see, let me see. Look at the breadth and length and height and depth of God's amazing love in Christ. Christian, you have what the prophets anticipated. You have what God himself through someone else has announced to you and applied to your heart. You have what the angels admire. When you see your salvation was anticipated, was announced, and your salvation is admired, well, then your salvation will be appreciated. Even as you endure the hardness and harshness of the world, you have a treasure that is precious, that is unfading, and that is secure. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that in the midst of our suffering, we have a living hope. We have a sure and secure and precious treasure, the gospel that has been anticipated and announced to us, applied to our hearts, and is admired. Oh, Lord, would you help us to appreciate this gift that we have so that even as suffering people, we would remember and be strengthened and sweetened that we are blessed people that you would grow us in appreciation for our salvation, that we would appreciate it so much that we would long for others to have it as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.